I don't know about you, but today there's an awful lot going around our country and our world. So today we're going to talk about those issues that are important to you with our guest, Spencer Fernando. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. I'm very excited to have with me a special guest, Spencer Fernando. Spencer is a very thoughtful columnist and analyst, and he's also with the National Citizens Coalition. Spencer, a warm welcome to you. Good to be here. So, Spencer, uh, we're going to cover a lot of topics today, and I would like to talk with a fairly uh, a fairly hot one, and that has to do with Chinese influence, specifically the influence that the Communist Party of China has had in, um, frankly, the last several elections uh, on, spe- on specific writings and the information that is dripping out through a source is, is really quite um, gobsmacking as we learn more about the influence that different organizations from the, the Communist Party of China has had on influencing those election wins. So do you think this is a story that is going to go away? Do you think it has legs? What do you think, Spencer? Well, you know, all the polls show that this is a story uh, a vast majority of Canadians are paying attention to. I mean, there was a survey, I think, two weeks ago, and it showed, I think, 71% of liberal supporters wanted a public inquiry. Independent Sorry, public 71% inquiry. of liberal of supporters wanted an inquiry. Wow. Yes, that's right. And that was, I think, an Angus Reid poll, if I'm not mistaken. And so I think it's it's a big concern. You know, you've seen public opinion in Canada turn very much against China in the last three or four years, you know, obviously mm-hmm. with COVID and then the two Michaels, and then just China's increasing belligerence under uh, Xi Jinping. And so I think what you have is, is Justin Trudeau is very out of step with many in his own party and certainly with the country. You know, he's, you know, his father was, you know, very much... Don't know if you could totally call him a communist, but certainly a communist sympathizer, a big mm-hmm. fan of communist China. I mean, Pierre right. Elliott Trudeau was praising communist China right at the time when people were talking about how they had killed millions of people, right? So that's always been kind of his ideology. And so he passed that down to his son, obviously, and, um, you know, Trudeau's kind of kept that going. But he finds himself in a very interesting situation where I think he and the people around him bet that China was just going to become more and more powerful, more and more influential. They felt the U.S. was going to weaken. So they tried to shift Canada more into the orbit of China as opposed to the U.S. And that bet hasn't really paid off. You know, China's got serious demographic and economic problems. Uh, There's a big, you know, coalition forming against them really around the world. I mean, you've got Japan and South Korea who are working together. Those two countries don't like each other at all. But they're looking and saying, well, you know what? We're both democracies. China's not. And China's a bigger threat in the long term. And so I think Trudeau finds himself kind of playing catch up. And then I think there's a lot of shady stuff that's happened in the liberal part. I mean, he's obviously very scared of holding an inquiry. He's desperate not to hold one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they really want to change the channel, don't they? They want Mm -hmm. to avoid any kind of situation where they can't, frankly, control the questions. When, in fact, this should be transparent and open to build confidence in Canada's electoral system, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at the appointment of David Johnston. That was obviously just a move to to delay and buy time, right? The liberals are hoping that in two or three months, you know, things will be different. There'll be different stories. Mm-hmm. People will be paying attention. But David Johnston himself, I mean, he, I would say, has an interest in, you know, not finding too much information about China's interference in our elections. I mean, he, I think he had daughters who went to university in China, or at least members of wow. his close family who went to university in China. He has close connections to China. So the idea that he's an impartial observer, I mean, he's probably one of the worst people you could have picked for this. Doesn't mean he's a bad guy in other areas, for sure. But, you know, for this, you pick someone who's a big fan of China, who has family connections to China, who has family connections to Justin Trudeau. It just looks like the same elitist establishment trying to protect itself rather than actually get information. And so, you know, it's, you know, and Trudeau's, he's ignoring the majority of MPs. You know, they voted, you know, last week uh, for a public inquiry, you know, the majority of them. And he's ignoring that too. So he's, he, you get the sense that he's scared of something. There's something he doesn't want people to find out about exactly. the Liberal Party in China. So part of the story about this story is kind of the unseen actors behind the scenes dripping out the information 
So what's your take on the information? Who's behind this? And and, and frankly, it's, it's fascinating their, their strategy on this. It seems like they keep dripping it out um, bit by bit in a way that is going to be even more damaging to the government. So obviously there's a large mm-hmm. file on this, or what do you think? Yeah, I think there's uh, basically an internal war within the security establishment, uh, both in, within CSIS itself and within the federal government itself. I mean, you have people in the federal government who obviously see Trudeau as a threat and see that he's not doing enough about China, see him as you know, possibly, you know, completely unreliable as a, as a national leader, you know, someone mm-hmm. who can't be trusted you know, with wow. state secrets and with all this information. And so, you know, they're releasing this information. As you say, it's it's clearly very thought out because they understand the media very well. You know, they wait just until attention starts to fade a bit and then boom, another story, right? Exactly. And so I think just the fact that there are people within the government who are that scared of Justin Trudeau not doing anything about it should be concerning to us because he's obviously not taking the kind of action that should be taken. And again, you know, the thing I think people need to look at is it's not just one issue, right? It's not like, okay, here's one story. You know, here's one thing Trudeau said. It's, you have to look at the entire trend, you know, mm-hmm. before he was even prime minister, he said he admired China's basic dictatorship. And people said, oh, okay, haha, kind of a, a dumb comment, right? People could dismiss it. But everything he's done since then, you know, he let China buy up a bunch of national security companies in Canada, you know, one of them that made you know, high-tech equipment that many of our NATO allies use. So why would you let China take that company? You know, he let China buy up large sectors of our economy. He lowered the threshold for foreign takeovers, which benefited mm-hmm. China, made it easier for them. You know, all the statements he made in favor of China. He, he was much more critical of the U.S. often in statements than he was of China. Mm-hmm. Tried to do a free trade deal with China, was talking about an extradition deal. And so just issue after issue, he's tried to move Canada closer to China's orbit. And that's obviously, you know, not what Canadians want, but he's kept trying to do it. And it's only recently where he started to back down, where I think he realizes that the pressure from the U.S. is just going to be so great. The U.S. isn't going to put up with Canada being completely taken over by China. Um, You know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually very similar policies towards China. It's one of the areas where, you know, Joe Biden rebranded a few of Trump's ideas, but very similar and so that's one of the, the few areas in the states where there's bipartisan agreement on confronting China. Exactly. And so to think that Canada could just shift away from the U.S. orbit into China's orbit, it's not going to happen. So your bet is that this story is not going to go away. Is that is that right? Yeah. And I think because it's, you know, I think Canadians had, you know, especially with the two Michaels, but then seeing what China is doing to the Uyghurs as well. I think Canadians just got to the point where, you know, a critical mass of people said, you know what, this China's government is acting in ways that are just completely antithetical to our beliefs as Canadians. You know, Canadians, obviously, we disagree on a lot of things, but most people at least think of themselves as pro-freedom, right? People would describe that different ways. You know, Trudeau obviously doesn't uh, have a pro-freedom perspective, but most Canadians see themselves as supporters of freedom one way or the other. And so the differences between you know, Canadians of different political stripes, and then the differences between Canada and China are so much, it's, it's so vast, right? And so I think Canadians are seeing this, and Canadians have had concerns, I think, for a long time. And we, people see how weak Trudeau is on China. People see almost every other country seeming to take action against Chinese influence and Chinese uh, communist influence, and Trudeau not doing anything. And then you have members of the Chinese-Canadian community themselves who are saying, look, we're getting threatened. We're afraid to talk about politics within Canada. Shouldn't Trudeau be doing something about that? And so I think it's, it's just reached a critical mass of people. And I, I don't think it's going to go away. A lot will depend on, you know, what people like ourselves do to keep it in the public sphere. Uh, the conservatives have to stay on it. I mean, it seems like there's a few conservatives who are implicated in this as well. But, you know, I've seen liberals say, oh, well, there's conservative MPs uh-huh. possibly or conservative senators. And I point out to them, well, OK, but the conservatives are still calling for a public inquiry. They're willing to have some bad information about themselves come out to address the issue. And Trudeau mm-hmm. obviously is not willing to do that. So I think that's an important contrast. But yeah, I, I don't think it's going to go away. And I think clearly people within CSIS are going to make sure it doesn't go away. Exactly. So stay tuned. And this is really, frankly, the tip of the iceberg, isn't it, uh, Spencer? Um So speaking of the international stage, there's a lot of moving parts going on, one of which is just Frankly, a, a lot of these issues beg the question, is is Canada a solid NATO partner? For years, we've um, not really um, uh, lived up to our NATO agreements in terms of both military spending and capability. Um, how is How are we really viewed at this point in terms of the international stage as a NATO partner? I don't think we're seeing... Uh... 
is we're taken too seriously. I think there's some some good things we've done. Uh, you know, I think supporting, you know, giving support to Ukraine is important. I know a lot of people, you know, are concerned, understandably, about the cost. But I think the cost of letting Russia win and then Russia having a border with a NATO ally, Poland, where we would be forced to basically go to war with Russia if Russia mm-hmm. attacked Poland, the cost of of the military buildup that would, would require is so much greater than helping Ukraine win now. So I think it's certainly worth it to help Ukraine at this moment. And, and going forward, we'll be paying more later if we don't. Um, but I think, you know, Canada did some good training. We trained a lot of Ukrainian soldiers, which is important. Um, they've provided financial support, which is nice. But I think the deeper problem is we just we don't spend enough in the military. You know, and this is where I think we have a government that just I don't know whether they're naive or, you know, it, it's it's something, you know, more sinister. But there's this attitude you see, you know, and I see people, you know, liberal supporters too on Twitter say, oh, what do we need a military for? Or, you know, Canada can't be, doesn't need to be a military power. And it, I think a lot of people don't really realize that the world is still a very dark and dangerous place quite often. You know, at the end of the day, if you want to protect your country, um, that means you have to invest in, you know, weapons that are designed to kill other human beings. And people mm-hmm. don't like to talk about it. It's not a nice thing, mm-hmm. but that's what war is. And you can actually dissuade war by being more powerful, right? The whole point is if you look weak to a country like Russia or you look weak to a country like China, they're going to take advantage of that. And so, yeah, we have to invest in, in weapons. We have to be willing to send people, you know, to protect our country. And sometimes that would mean fighting a war and, and killing people. But if we don't show that we're prepared to do that, not only does it put us in danger, but our allies will look and say, well, why are we defending you? I mean, look at it from the perspective of the U.S., right? If Canada was attacked, our first move would be basically to beg the U.S. to help us. And I'm sure they would because it's in their interest to defend North America. But how is it fair if we we consider the U.S. an ally and a friend? Mm-hmm. How is it fair that we put all the burden for our own defense on them and then say, oh, well, yeah, you're just supposed to do this because you're an ally. What if the U.S. got involved you know, it's some catastrophic war and then someone else attacked them. Well, shouldn't we have the capability to you know, defend at least part of North America? You'd think so, right? And so the last budget, and again, like, you know, it's all about priorities. I mean, Trudeau's massively increased spending. The recent budget increased the deficit dramatically from the liberal projections. And somehow the military isn't benefiting from it. And we, I'm sure you saw the story of yeah. how troops in Poland mm-hmm. are being forced to pay for their own food. And some of them are, their families are going into debt. So how do you spend so much extra money per year? And somehow you don't build up the military in a, in a much more dangerous world. And so I think I, I, I don't see how other NATO countries would take us too seriously. They have no reason to. No, I, I think you make a very good point that Canada really needs to up its game as a NATO partner. And, and that really relates to our international relationships with so many other people that we rely on and, and in turn um, rely on each other. So speaking of the federal budget, um, it is just astounding. I would never believe 10 years ago that we would have a government that spent more money the last, um, uh, frankly, what is it, four years than all prior governments previously. So the, the level of spending is really hard to comprehend. So this last week, we've had that federal budget. What's your summary and, and quick take on that federal budget? Yeah, well, you know, people have made the point that it seems the liberals are almost scared of balanced budgets. I mean, their own projections, if they just didn't do much, you know, even after all their spending, if they just didn't do that much in this budget, just kept things relatively stable, they'd be, you know, you know, four or five years away from a balanced budget quite reasonably. And so, of course, you know, you know, Christy Freeland was saying a lot before the budget of, yeah, we're fiscally responsible, blah, blah, blah. But of course, that's not how it went. I think there's a bit of an internal conflict between Freeland and Trudeau, I don't think it'll ever get too public. Mm. I think she's kind of, it's just a guess, but I think she's probably looking for the exits relatively soon. You know, you know, she has a lot of friends in New York City, a lot of friends in Washington. I think she's more uh, at home with the, um, you know, kind of the elitist you know, international political crowd in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of more her scene. So I think she wants to avoid reputational damage by being associated with Trudeau, you know, going forward, especially if the U.S. sees Trudeau as, as not trustworthy on China, mm-hmm. then she doesn't want to taint her own reputation. So I think she she may have intended to have a, a reasonable budget and Trudeau came in and said, no, nope, we're going to do a bunch of spending because Trudeau doesn't. He thinks the balance, budget balances itself, which hasn't happened yet. But overall, it, it just shows that Trudeau's he's just going to keep spending. It's basically an NDP budget. The NDP is, you know, obviously influencing a lot of what the liberals are doing. Mm-hmm. They don't get anything for it in terms of cabinet seats somehow, but, you know, they have some influence in terms of just massive spending. And uh, I think the liberals, they're they're kind of caught in a, a weird loop economically, or they're, they're trapped in a way, right? Because the more inflation goes up, the more Canadians struggle, 
and the more Canadians get angry at the government, understandably. Exactly. And, you know, then the Liberals say, okay, well, we're going to borrow more money and give it to you to help with inflation. But of course, that makes inflation worse, right? So they're just caught in this trap. And it's ideological because they can't accept that, you know, sometimes the government needs to actually cut spending. The government mm-hmm. needs to step back, reduce taxes, reduce its rule, let the private sector have more influence. And that's how you get higher productivity and you start to lower costs and prices. But Trudeau, he, he's too ideological to do that. And so he's. Mm-hmm. So what I've said is none of this is going to change until they're voted out because he's not going to change his approach. He's not going to learn from his mistakes. He's not going to listen to you know people who he disagrees with. He's just going to keep you know barreling forward, and the results have not been good so far. No, it is really quite uh, surprising in, in some respects that the government continues to be on a spending tear. There's uh, no lessening up on the throttle in terms of deficit spending. And it's interesting within the budget, there's no real articulation of any vision to balance it or even uh they're even throwing away kind of the curbs around Mm -hmm. the percentage of um debt to gdp uh of the economy you know you want to have a good balance between the size of the economy and not too much spending so this is where i'm also fasting because this last week there was a poll that came out if memory serves me correctly from mangus reed pointing out that some 60 percent of canadians now understand that increased inflation relates directly to all this increased money that is being sprayed across the country. So this is where um, I'm I'm wondering, why do you think the government is spending so much money when they're the primary cause of all this inflation that's happening and that's undermining the middle class? Like when you're spending bill for food and, and so many other essential items, like filling up your, the, the tank for your gas, uh, for your car is um, in order of magnitude 200, 300% more than it was just a few years ago. This is, this, is a, this is really hitting the middle class hard. So why do you think they're doing this, uh, Spencer? Yeah, well, I think, you know, Trudeau's whole, you know, it's his ideological vision is that the government is the solution to every problem, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of narcissistic for him, too, because he gets credit for it if he goes out and says, I'm giving you some of your money back. Of course, he first took more of it. So it's not really a benefit for people. But I think, you know, as I said, they're, they're just kind of trapped where the, the answer to a lot of these problems is to cut government spending or at least reduce the, the increase in government spending at the very least and reduce the role of government. But he can't bring himself to do that because that would be to admit that, oh, maybe Pierre Poya was actually right about some things. Maybe the conservatives were right about some mm-hmm. things. And he won't do that. And so he's just going to keep it's just going to be it's every you know, solution. To every problem is to spend more money. And wow. so, and what, again, to get back to the military issue, what's ironic is the one place where really spending money is actually needed is the military, right? That's the one place where spending more money would actually fix some of the problems it has. And that's the one place where he's not going to spend much more money. Everywhere else he's going to spend money, but not in the military. And so, you know, and, and you know, unfortunately, it does, it, does, um, it does convince some voters. You know, there are voters, I see people on Twitter who are talking, oh, they're glad that we're getting money from Trudeau, we're getting money from the government, this is great, you know, the checks are going out or the direct deposit payments and i understand it's people it's nice to get money obviously but the government first took more money from you and then gives a little bit of it back they borrowed a lot of the extra money that they're giving to people and so that's just going to make things worse and i think as you said it's good that people are starting to make that connection because you know we're, it's the definition of insanity doing the same thing expecting different results exactly trying to fix inflation by borrowing and spending more money yeah. not really the best answer so You've been watching the Prime Minister for years, Spencer, as an analyst. So you would would you say on balance then, and I don't mean this in any partisan way, that he's really our first socialist prime minister? Is 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 that would you agree with that? Yeah, certainly. He's certainly uh, much more socialist than yeah, compare him to Paul Martin, for example, right? Night and day, right? Paul Martin seems yeah, Paul Martin probably would disagree with it, but I'd say Paul Martin's probably closer to someone like Pierre Pauliev than he is to Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. Certainly, how he views the economy. You know, Paul Martin was relatively, you know, fiscally responsible, fiscally conservative, um, and that's that's another reason why I think uh, Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh work so well together. Unfortunately, you know, Singh is willing to basically get almost nothing and get no power, but mm-hmm. is glad to give in to Singh because he gets a few votes from it. And they're both, you know, very socially socialist minded. I mean, look at look at what Jagmeet Singh's been tweeting lately. He's talking about, oh, there needs to be a special tax, basically specifically on Galen Weston, because he thinks Galen Weston got too big a raise. 
You know, he's saying, oh, tax Galen Weston's raised. And, and who is Galen Weston again? No, uh, the uh, Loblaws CEO. Okay. Right, yeah. And so he's kind of become a target for people who are angry about rising food prices, who are somehow blaming uh, the CEO of Loblaws instead of the government or the Bank of Canada, which doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense to me. But uh, Jagmeet Singh is kind of grandstanding and saying, because Galen Weston got a big raise you know, this last year. And Singh is saying, oh, it's too much. We need to tax his raise. He's got like a fundraising thing or like a, you know, mm-hmm. Email list proposal saying, "Oh, sign this and sign up and, and tell us we should tax his his wages or his his increase." But that would be just a specific one-time tax on one person because Jagmeet Singh is targeting him politically, and that's exactly the kind of thing you'd see. Exactly, kind of yeah, thing, right. Which so is it's kind of a superficial mm-hmm. attack on a person rather than saying, yeah. "Well, you know what? It's the policies that are hurting people with higher inflation, with all this spending that you're all, in, frankly, in cahoots with." So. Help me understand a, a, a situation here. Why is the NDP going along with with all this? Like, why did they make this kind of partnership arrangement with the Liberals? Why were they so desperate to avoid a, an inevitable election that comes with being a minority government? Yeah, I think that Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau are both not... They're not really liberals and new Democrats in the traditional sense of the word. And what I mean by that is Justin Trudeau, obviously, as we discussed, is not not anything like Paul Martin or the mm-hmm. classic liberals who are somewhat fiscally responsible. Uh, he's much more to the left, much more extreme. Jagmeet Singh, in a similar vein, he's not really uh, a working class NDP person, right? He's not mm-hmm. you know, someone who cares about the working class. He's very much an elitist. It's like champagne socialism, right? Like Jagmeet Singh has a BMW, I believe. He wears expensive watches. He wears expensive suits. And again, like I, I don't begrudge anybody personal wealth. Sure. It's just so odd for him to go around talking in such a socialist way, saying we need to tax mm-hmm. the rich and the rich are the problem. And, you know, he's doing pretty well himself and he hasn't given any of that away. You know, he didn't give up his own raise that all the MPs got. He didn't pay that back, but he wants to mm-hmm. tax somebody else's. And so, you know, it's just they're both kind of outliers with their traditional parties, but they, they recognize that. If they lose power, then their parties might revert to a more normal position. And I think they both they both kind of convinced themselves that the conservatives are almost an existential threat to the country. I mean, you look at the way they both speak about conservatives, and they're obviously just just terrified at the thought of the conservatives winning. So I think they've kind of you know almost brainwashed themselves into thinking the conservatives are so big a threat that basically anything is justified to stop them. Okay, and so they, they work together to stop that. But, but isn't it ironic? It seems like. As we characterize the parties, then the NDP and the Liberals are more radically on the left, and then the Conservatives are kind of left, ironically, defending really working Canadians, which is most of us. Um, so they're, they're, they, they, you'd think they would have a significant electoral advantage in that landscape, inevitably, wouldn't they? Yeah, there are some polls that are starting to show that the uh, the conservatives are gaining among working class supporters. I mean, there was a survey recently that showed among public sector union members and especially private sector union members, the conservatives are actually leading. And what's very interesting, and then there was there was some you know article saying, oh well, it's because of some sort of you know latent uh, you know you know prejudicial attitudes among the working class. The the left can just never accept that the working class might not vote for them, right? It's got to be some something wrong with people if they don't vote. Mm-hmm for the left. But I think you're starting to see an inflation plays into it, right? I mean, everybody's hit by inflation, you know, working class people, especially. And so I think there's only so many people who work for the government and there are many, but not the majority. The majority of people in Canada still work in the private sector. And so while the government has done quite well under the liberals and you know, the NDP by extension, most people are not doing well. Most people's wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people are seeing, um, you know, the survey a few days ago that showed the majority of people who don't own a home in, in Canada have given up entirely on owning a home. So those are things that hit the working class harder. There's there's not much hope in the country that you can go from working class to middle class and upper class. It's just people mm-hmm. feel stuck. And so, yeah, they're going to look around and they're going to look and say, who's the only political party saying something different than the status quo? Right, right now that you're Polyev. So people understand that we're going to look in that direction. So you, you, are you of the sense that as Canadians feel more pain, in terms of both, you know, uh, inflation on the cost of living, they can't, you know, they're working hard, but they can't afford a home in many markets. Um, they may be starting to lose their jobs. They don't, you know, they're, they're, they're really, there's a lot of frustration out there. I, I see this anecdotally, but in terms of the polls and analysis, then is your theory that this is starting to hit 
uh, Canadians in a way that they're realizing that indeed Canada is broken in, in so many respects. And I, I know that Pierre Polyev has really pushed that message. But from a policy point of view, you see that in the numbers, how this is impacting Canadians. So do you think this the, this is starting to um, really impact the, the Prime Minister's popularity then? I think so. I mean, he, he's been close to 30%, you know, the Liberals have been close to 30% support for quite some time. I think one thing people forget is that Trudeau, is, he's not really ever been that popular a politician. I mean, he, he won in 2015 about the exact same percent of the popular vote the Conservatives had won in 2011. And he was popular for, you know, two years or so, relatively popular, you know, 50% or so. He never, he never got back to that position. He lost the popular vote in 2019 and then lost the popular vote again in uh, 2021. That's right. And 2021, yeah. I believe, was the, for the party that won the most seats, that was the weakest popular vote performance ever, you know, for the, for the winning party. And the previous weakest performance had been the Liberals in 2019. So he's been a relatively unpopular politician, winning, you know, narrowly targeted victories in certain ridings to stay in power. But he, he's, he hasn't been that popular. And then things really declined with the, the China interference scandal. I think that tipped some more people and said it's not just that he seems incompetent to a lot of people. He seems very corrupt. And that's the mm -hmm. feeling a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. And so I think all of it is just added up. And then the fact that, you know, everything in the country seems like it's getting a little bit worse, you know, day by day. And that's that's you know, not just with crime. But, you know, one thing I talk about a lot is per capita income. Right. Right. Canadian yeah. per capita income is now going down, which means that on average, people are actually poor year after year. That's been going on for a while. And so when people feel like just bit by bit by bit, they're getting poor, they see crime going up, you know, the country seems a lot less safe. And they now your taxes are going to be going up a lot, right? Yeah. And so people yeah. look and say, well, you know, what is the federal government doing? We see all this money they're spending. We see all these announcements, but our own lives aren't getting better. And, uh, you know, who do you blame? You blame the guy who's in, in charge of the federal government. You can't blame exactly. anybody else. He's the one yeah. who's responsible. So I did want to shift a little bit to another cause of inflation, is, and it's frankly the, the attack on energy in Canada. For years, um, dependable, uh, cheap energy has really been uh, an ace card for Canada. It, it, it affects everything in terms of the cost of manufacturing here to uh, you know living in your home. Um, but this government has really been um, about attacking energy on so many fronts. Um, and that's increasing the cost of it. If you look at the whole carbon tax policy, uh, it's all under this policy moniker of, of fighting, quote, this existential threat of climate change. Do you think Canadians are continuing to buy that or are they, are they starting to see through that, that ruse in the sense that, all these predictions about climate change have not happened a bit. Uh, you think of Al Gore's uh, famous movie some 20 years ago called An Inconvenient Truth. None of those predictions have happened, nor are they based on any of the, the reports from the, uh, the UN. Uh, it, it, people would be shocked to hear that. So are people buying into that, that, that whole notion that we should be paying that much more for energy to fight this existential threat of climate change or what do you think yeah the polls on this one are kind of tough to figure out because you'll see canadians will you know like 70 80 percent will say climate change is very serious it's a real threat we need to take action yeah. and then you know 60 70 percent will say i don't want to pay any more to deal with this right so exactly it's, it's a bit of a, an issue where i think I, I kind of feel like there was an unspoken contract between governments and the people on these issues where the people would say they took it seriously and were concerned about it. Governments would say the same thing. You know, they would they would take a few you know minor actions to deal with it. You know, certainly incentivizing clean energy through you know, tax credits, for example, or incentivizing home renovation. That, that that's fine. You're not punishing anybody. You're giving incentives. But I think people thought that's kind of where it would stop, right? And now we see someone like Stephen Gilbo, the environment minister, the former Greenpeace guy. He scaled the CN Tower. You know, I think he broke into Ralph Klein's house or something. He's he's a very extreme guy. And now he's the environment minister, right? He's just recently he's telling Ontario, oh, you can't build houses in this green belt area. And so, you know, you have people who they're not following the, the contract, the, the unwritten contract people agreed to. They're actually making people feel economic pain. They're taking your money and they're saying, oh, this mm -hmm. is to save the planet. And it's, you know, you look at how they treat Canadian oil and natural gas, for example, right? It's much more environmentally friendly in terms of how it's 
you know, the, the production of it, uh, better labor standards, better human rights standards than, you know, certainly Saudi Arabia or Russia or Nigeria. Um, but they're the, nope, we have to, Canada can't do this. We can't sell this because we have to save the planet. And it's just, it's a weird mix of ideology and just, just stupidity. Because and if we there's going to import oil from corrupt regimes like Venezuela who don't um, produce in a responsible way. It, it's, it's, it's frankly gobsmacking, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, if there's a set demand for oil and one country doesn't fulfill that demand, that doesn't change the demand. It just means it's going to get you know fulfilled by other people. And so yeah. even helping the environment, if we produce less, we're just meaning there's going to be more production in other countries. So we're just making ourselves poor. And then Canadians really, this is where I think Canadians need to start connecting the dots on these things, is that the foundation of civilization itself is cheap energy, right? Without affordable energy, you can't have a civilization. That's, that's why you know, when society moves from you know steam to coal and then you know coal to oil, massive economic growth takes place because mm -hmm. the more efficient energy sources, it just changes everything, right? If somehow we got fusion power around the world, it would be completely revolutionary, right? I mean, it would be almost free energy for everybody all at the same time. It's, you know, fusion energy has been 10 years away for 50 years, so it always takes a while. But um, Canadians have to connect the dots. And yes, there's a reason that we have massive inflation. There's a reason why our GDP per capita is getting worse. We're not producing as much energy as we should. We're not using our own energy. Uh, the price of energy is being artificially increased by the federal government, and that increases everything. And that's why the carbon tax is such a bad idea, because, okay, well, you look at, you know, something you wouldn't think would be affected by clothing, right? Well, you're you know, clothes are going to cost more because someone had to transport it. You know, someone had to buy all the materials and, and the dyes and everything to, to make it. And that costs more. And then, you know, the factory is paying a higher energy bill because of it. So everything goes up with the carbon tax. And, you know, I think Canadians need to realize that, again, if you keep voting for the liberals and keep voting for these policies, then you're going to keep complaining about all these things that are happening because those policies aren't changing. People really need to make a change. Yeah, it really has a huge impact on on your life in terms of cost uh, and and so forth. And I, I think it's also interesting because in my own discussion with so many different um, Aboriginal leaders, there's a lot of excitement about trying to work on um, prosperity agenda, like working at opening up economic corridors across Canada to better serve um, the country in terms of energy, like bringing oil and gas pipelines to uh, trade to different markets, not just simply the United States, but the world markets. And here you have in the winter um, visits from a number of international leaders, uh, including the president of Germany, um, asking Canada for help to bring liquefied natural gas uh, to Germany, given the kind of concerns around not having enough energy, given the uh, restrictions from Russia. Um, but our prime minister is saying there's no business case to export um, liquefied natural gas. And, and I think what I, I find ironic is that this is undermining the prosperity, not only for all Canadians, but including uh, many Aboriginal uh, First Nation communities that want to be part of a prosperous future. Um, so do, are people not picking up on that reality? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a different views of what reconciliation means. You know, I think mm -hmm. for a lot of politicians, unfortunately, it, it's people like Trudeau and, and I'd include Jagmeet Singh in it too. It means saying all the politically correct things and then keeping people in kind of a, a subservient victim status where they're reliant mm -hmm. on the government, right? It's like, okay, well, these keep people as victims and say all the right things, do your land acknowledgements, you know, at the arena or something, and then you feel good about yourself. Whereas another view would be, well, the best way is to help people achieve economic prosperity, true independence and true freedom mm -hmm. um, it comes through economic prosperity. And so, you know, it's interesting how you'll have the vast majority of one community, an indigenous community who will support an energy project and they'll get almost no media attention whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then a very small segment of that community, not at all representative of overall public opinion, will take the more, I mean, quote unquote, I say traditional, but it's not really traditional. It's just, it's what the media views is, you know, the, the right, you know, indigenous perspective. Uh, because it's politically correct and they'll get all the attention somehow they'll get treated as if they represent everybody and so you know it's 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 like with the, the land acknowledgements right i mean are any of these politicians actually going to give the land back i mean it, it's so interesting right they, they'd rather just say that and then feel virtuous about themselves and mm -hmm. then do nothing else 
And then you have communities saying, look, we want pipelines, we want energy infrastructure, we want opportunity. And Trudeau blocks it for other political reasons, right? Or you know, Gil Bose says, oh, we have to save the planet, so we have to destroy our own economy. And so, you know, that's a serious problem. And then, you know, Trudeau talks a lot about supporting Ukraine, but one of the best ways to do so is to starve Russia of energy revenue. Yeah, and exactly. And yeah. can easily help do that. Um, you know, if we're supporting fellow democracies, they're pretty desperate. They're asking for energy. And yeah, Trudeau says there's no business case. And then, well, it's interesting that Qatar and the U.S. seem to be lining up, you know, tens of billions of dollars worth of contracts. I mean, the U.S. has already massively expanded their LNG processing in the past year alone. So again, I mean, I, I don't know what it's going to take for Canadians to wake up and say, look, these, these choices are real. You know, if you don't build an LNG plant or LNG export terminal, that's tens of billions of dollars you're losing. And okay, right. why don't we have good hospitals? Why don't we have good schools and roads? Because exactly. you didn't sell stuff to people, right? I mean, that's right. And ironically, now you have all kinds of other allies, including the United States, which mm-hmm. are the largest um, liquefied natural gas exporter in the world. And meanwhile, Canada has been, um, uh, frankly, twiddling its thumbs and, and totally giving up on that opportunity. Now, there have been some progress, but it's been incredibly undermined by really, I would argue, bad public policy. So speaking of energy policy, this government federally talks a lot about the um, Canada's energy transition. We hear a lot about this in terms of um, it, it, it putting out of work uh, tens of thousands of Canadians out of good paying jobs. And then the whole idea is to transition them to be um, people doing menial jobs. Um, uh, do you think that the people are waking up to this and that further stokes the fire of frankly, Western alienation and, and divides our country uh, and, and frankly creates enormous amount of frustration. Yeah, I mean, Trudeau seems determined to, you know, split the country or at least make it you know, much angrier, more divided place. And what's what's so ironic is he could have just looked at Stephen Harper's example and realized it's not actually that tough to keep Canada united, even if you're not personally popular. I mean, Harper was never popular in Quebec. I mean, he had, you know, there was a few years where you know they made a few gains, but most of the time he didn't pull well in Quebec at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but support for Quebec separatism declined dramatically under Harper. It's because he understood how to govern the country. He, he respected Quebec's you know feeling of you know needing independence, you know wanting to have control over certain areas, and he respected that. He also respected you know the Ontario automotive sector. The government was supportive there. He respected the energy sector in Alberta, you know Newfoundland especially, you know in the parts of the country where oil production and natural gas production. Is important. He was supportive of that too. You know, sought to support the the forestry industry in BC. So people, they can think, okay, well, you know, even people who don't personally like Harper felt that we, okay, well, at least he's helping everybody in the country. He's not really playing favorites, right? Right. Trudeau totally different. He's both personally unpopular and he plays favorites, which is very dangerous. You know, you can't get away with that if you're not, mm-hmm. you know, some popular nationwide figure. And so he, you know, he, he the. The aerospace sector in Quebec uses a lot of fuel. He has no problem with that, but he, of course, has a problem with the Alberta energy sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't like that he's made things worse in Saskatchewan. I mean, Saskatchewan and, and Alberta get hit the hardest with the carbon tax, and those tend to be the two places where the liberals do the worst. You know, they get, they have, I think, yeah, no seats in either. Um, the NDP got one seat in, in Edmonton, I believe, but other than that, a conservative sweep in Saskatchewan and Alberta. And it just so happens those are the places he hits the hardest with all his taxes, right? And so, he has this kind of vindictive attitude of, you know, I'm going to wreck things for the people who aren't voting for me. And again, you can't have that kind of attitude as a leader. Mm-hmm. You, you don't punish people for not voting for you. That just mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. And so it's, you know, yeah, he's he's driving alienation around the country. Um, he's, you know, even as I said with Stephen Gilbo, now he's telling Ontario what and where they can build houses, saying, oh, you can't build in this protected area. And those are seats, areas where federally the conservative, the, the liberals are, are wanting to hold up to their seats. So they're playing a very dangerous game with this kind of dictate to everybody, you know, play political favorites. I, I don't think it's going to end too well for them. I think at a certain point, people do say, you know, enough is enough. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I think that's, you're, you're putting your finger on a very important debate around how our country is going to work. Do you have a federal government that's constantly intruding into provincial jurisdiction? And at Frontier, we would say, well, it's very important to deliver services and control as close to the people as possible. And um, so that kind of federal intrusion is not a good idea. You want to respect as much as possible, not just the provincial level of government, but local government. You want to give people as much control in their lives as possible. So 
I think this is part of that conflict, is it not, at a, at a larger level? And I know that's, uh, frankly, being challenged at many different levels in the courts. Yeah, I and mean, you'll often see people, they'll rate their local representatives the best, and then the ratings get worse and worse the further away someone is, right? So mm -hmm. you know, their, their local city council gets a better rating than their provincial representatives, and their provincial representatives get a better rating than their federal. And I think that's just basic human nature is you're going to you're both going to have more influence over the person who's closer to you, and they're probably going to be more in tune with your own perspective and exactly. your own issues, right? And so, you know, in theory, the system is supposed to make MPs local representatives who are in tune with the people and then hold the government accountable. But it's it's obviously that's not how it works, right? It's, you know, the, you know, the, the prime minister controls liberal MPs and he can punish anyone who steps out of line. We've seen him do that. You know, you just don't sign nomination papers for somebody and they're almost certainly going to lose to the person the party puts forward in their place. And so the systems become very skewed uh, in favor of, you know, top-down federal power mm -hmm. and then you add Trudeau's ideological views which is again you know top-down the federal government should control everything we still always trying to control speech and everything on the mm -hmm. internet and exactly. so it's you know it, it's it's all these things all at once it's his disrespect for certain industries in certain parts of the country it's his controlling nature it's his personal unpopularity and then it's the fact that things on top of all of that are also getting worse he, ironically he'd be getting away with everything if crime was going down and if the economy was booming He'd be getting away with most of this stuff. People would say, oh, whatever, you know, okay, he's kind of corrupt. You know, he's a control freak, eh, eh, whatever, you know, the economy's doing well. But things are getting worse everywhere in the country. And so he can't really fall back on even any progress or success. Right now, um, we have the National Citizens Inquiry making its way across the country in different locations. In fact, in Winnipeg, it's uh, going to be in mid-April there, among other locations. And the Citizens Inquiry is an attempt to to listen to witnesses tell their the impacts of the management of COVID-19 on their lives, but also listen thoughtfully to a variety of experts. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. And to try to listen to that kind of story as a way to, to, to frankly learn the lessons from COVID-19. And I think, frankly, there are a lot of mistakes done. Often it's very hard for people then in office to even fess up to that in a thoughtful way. Um, so my, my question to you is with the national citizens inquiry, do you think there's an opportunity to ever see a reality where in Canada we'll have different decision makers learn these lessons and frankly, ensure that this never happens again? I know that's a big question, but, uh, that's a, that's a big issue that look is on our radar now, some three years after this. Yeah, I think it could have an influence on a future conservative government, uh, for sure. I think the you know, conservative MPs are probably paying attention to it and would be willing to learn from it, especially because their base demanded that. I mean, you saw them you know, not take too strong a stance while it was happening. And Aaron O'Toole was basically punished first by the party base who pressured MPs and then MPs themselves who, who removed him. Um, so I think they would pay attention. I don't see Justin Trudeau or Jagmeet Singh, unfortunately, paying attention to it. You know, they're too arrogant. You know, Trudeau, I think Trudeau thinks the only mistake he made is probably not being more heavy handed. That's his attitude. He was clearly enjoying the kind of power and the expanded power and authority he had during COVID. He enjoyed that a little too much. And so I think, I think it could have an influence on, um, you know, future conservative government, because if there is another pandemic, even, you know, very bad flu season, um, some of the same public health authorities may be pushing for some of those measures again and having, you know, a detailed inquiry, people talking about, you know, the mistakes that were made and the damage it did would be effective in pushing back against that. I could see a conservative government utilizing that. So I think it could have you know, quite a lot of influence if we have a conservative government in the future. But right now, I don't, I don't see Trudeau you know, willing to listen to that. Um, so I did want to shift quickly to immigration. We know that in Canada now we have record levels, uh, frankly, unseen before in our country of um, 700, 800, 900,000, depending on what kind of numbers that you use of new Canadians arriving into Canada. And uh, frankly, a number of them illegal coming through the, the notorious uh, Roxham Road pathway as people would funnel in there just south of Montreal. So is that serving Canadians? Is this new record level of immigration coming into Canada? Yeah, I think it's it's right now. It's certainly too much, um, you know. People, and again, this is where it's so it's so odd that this issue is not really discussed openly in Canada. Almost every other country, you know, immigration levels are a key point of political difference, as it should be. It has a big mm -hmm. impact on the country, you know. Um, 
I think Canada certainly needs immigration to a certain extent. I think it's, you know, we're a country built on immigration. Uh, it's been very positive for the most part. But the idea that we just never debate what the level should be seems very odd. And, you know, I, I'd say to people, people say, oh, well, it's, it's anti-immigrant to say that you want to reduce immigration. Mm-hmm. And say, okay, let's bring in 20 million people next year. <laughs> and they'd say, oh, well, that's too much. It's like, okay, well, so you acknowledge that there is a point at which it's too much. You just disagree on where that point is, right? Right, exactly. It wouldn't be anti-immigration to say we shouldn't double our mm-hmm. population next year, right? That's just common sense. And so, you know, you have, I think, People now in the real estate sector saying, look, we, we, we're not building enough houses to keep up with, you know, even base basic population growth, let alone 1 million people coming in uh, per year. I think it was 1 million when you add up, you know, permanent residents and then temporary foreign workers and students. And so, okay, how, how are people going to afford houses if demand keeps going up faster than supply? It's just, it's going to get worse and worse. Healthcare system's not doing well. So you just bring in a whole bunch of new people at a rate faster than you expand your you know, public sector, and, you know, your service infrastructure. Um, that doesn't seem like a good idea. And the, the irony is the liberals think they're being pro-immigration by doing this, but nothing is going to reduce support for immigration more in the long run than bringing in too many people and causing a lot of problems for the country. Yeah, so that's the I think we, yeah. So I think we certainly need to reduce the number and you know start having an open conversation about what level of immigration uh, is positive for the country and, and when it gets to be, you know, a net negative. Exactly. So this is just hot off the press. We have a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada uh, saying that um, they will not hear the appeal from the uh, so-called Dr. Brian Day case where he operates a private clinic in British Columbia and Vancouver called the Canby Clinic. Um, this is a clinic that's been around for a long time, among others in our country, that frankly helps serve Canadians. Uh, it's where people can choose to pay for those services and get better health care. So the Supreme Court elected uh, to um, not hear that appeal. And uh, um, frankly, at Frontier, we've done a lot of analysis about uh, health care and and it's, it's, you know, despite having a lot of great people in our healthcare system, people who are dedicated and work hard, the design of our system is very much like Soviet healthcare systems, where you do have um, a system that exists, but many people, usually five to six million Canadians are, are on waiting lists. Many are in chronic pain. And it's frankly one of the lowest performing healthcare systems in our world. It's among the most expensive. Um, but if you go to France, Germany, Sweden, their systems are remarkably better and uh, better designed to serve people. And they, because they're given a choice where they want to take their money to, to, to get healthcare. Um, so those public goals for healthcare are very important, but the whole design of a kind of a public monopoly is a bad idea. So is this kind of decision going to serve Canadians better in your view? It's, it's kind of a weird ideological, you know, rut we're stuck in as a country where, you know, and I, I talk to people about this all the time, you know, I'll say something like, oh, here's, here's the problem with our healthcare system. Here's the ranking, right? As you say, we spend more, we get less than comparable countries. And almost every reply will be like, oh, well, we're better than America. It's like, you do realize that America and Canada are not the only two countries with healthcare systems. Exactly. Yes. Both countries, ironically, are actually uh, outlier models, right? The U.S. is an outlier in the lack of public uh, support they have for people. And Canada is an outlier in our complete, you know, restriction on uh, most private services. Mm-hmm. And neither one, you know, the U.S. has its benefits. You know, people who have good insurance get great healthcare in the States, but mm-hmm. a lot of people get very little healthcare at all. And in Canada, sure, we all technically have access, but it's only in theory, right? Do you really have access mm-hmm. if you're waiting, you know, to the point where it's too late. Um, the other thing that's funny is that, well, not funny, but you know, you know what I mean. You know, our system would look much worse if it wasn't for the U.S. system. The U.S. system takes a lot of pressure off the Canadian system. Like people are just like, well, I'll just go and pay for it in the U.S. So we would look even worse if not for the U.S. system. But you know, the key thing is that it's like people don't know that there's a difference between public delivery and universal. You know, exactly. Coverage, right? yeah, and right. so people think, you know, when someone says, oh, we, we can provide private healthcare services, they think, oh, everyone's going to just pay with their credit card. Well, no, I mean, most of Europe has a mix of public and private mm-hmm. hospitals and you yeah. go to a private hospital and they say, OK, here, here's how much it is. You give them your government health card and the government gets billed. And so yeah. you still have everybody being covered, but you also have private sector competition and innovation. And so they, they tend to get they, they pay less or if they pay the same amount, they get better service than we do. And so. 
I don't know why people are so scared of that kind of system. It, it's very strange. But as I said before, I think, you know, regardless of the Supreme Court decision, um, I think in the long run, it, it's inevitable that we're going to have more private health care. It, it just has to happen. There's, the public system is obviously crumbling. Uh, you can throw as much money as you want at a system that's broken. It's not going to fix it. Yeah. And so people just go elsewhere. People will do stuff under the table. You know, provinces are starting. You see Ontario is opening it up. People are just going to demand it. And most surveys show that, you know, Canadians do want it. But do want more private service, but the the political class is still obviously scared of talking well, about it. But but Spencer, the 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 thing that just makes me crazy is that the the very people making decisions around these things, including those justices on the Supreme Court and MPs, don't use our healthcare system. They don't have to sit on a long waiting list like regular Canadians. They're like elite athletes. If they have a a hip that's in pain, they'll get it done right away. Um, so they they skip the queue, they skip the lineup. So they don't they don't have to live with the consequences of their decisions. So that says in itself that the system is not serving regular Canadians. And I think that's um, yeah, it's a very disappointing decision by the Supreme Court of Canada, in my opinion. Yeah, and you know I think the the whole thing people don't get is if you don't have a system where you know money is a, a factor in determining access or status then proximity to political power will just replace money, right? That means, okay, so you can't pay for better service, but you know an MP, um, you know, you know a Supreme Court justice, or you are an MP, or you work in a government ministry. Well, here you go. Your your wait doesn't have to happen, right? So there's always going to be people who are going to get better service because they either have more power or more money. Uh, The thing you do is what kind of system best works for the most people. And obviously, that's not the system we have now. Exactly. So speaking of control and censorship, I want to talk to you about Bill C-11. Are you concerned about it? Very much. Uh, also C-18, I'm concerned about that one as well. Um, and then the online harms bill, I think I think that's C-36, unless they change the name of the new parliament. But it's just, it's all, um, it, it's just all, you know, the government is, it, it's like they're scared of the internet almost, right? They're scared of the fact that, you know, someone like myself, for example, can start up a private website, you know, build a big following and criticize them openly. They don't like that. You know, yeah. they, they've they thrown so much money at the establishment, the legacy media. Um, and then I think they're saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, why are we giving all this money to influence the media if all these independent people on the internet can just, you know, speak freely? So they're kind of saying, okay, we'll give more money to CBC. And then we'll restrict free speech on the internet, and then we'll give more money to the establishment media. And there you go. You basically have a state media apparatus. And this is why, again, I think, you know, we shouldn't dismiss when Trudeau said that he admired China's basic dictatorship. I mean, mm-hmm. Trudeau looks and says, you know, there is no such thing as private media in China. There's no other perspective. There's no opposition media. There's no critical media. You know, Xi Jinping will go to the headquarters of Chinese media and say, you know, your job is to you know, promote what the government wants. And no one, no one looks, no one bats an eye at that in China. That's just mm-hmm. that's how people think it should be. And so I think Trudeau looks at that and says, you know, why am I sitting here getting criticized by you know some guy, Spencer Fernando? Who who's what right does he have to say I'm a terrible leader? Exactly. And well, I think I, that yeah. I think the irony, Spencer, is that when we talk about all these bills, they have different components in it. There's there's a complexity mm-hmm. to it, but it is really all about censorship because quite frankly, the government could could put to rest concerns about censorship if they weighed in incisively in all the legal language and said, no, under no circumstances will the government censor what's on the internet. But they're not doing that, are they? No. And the thing is, the, the reason you have to look at it as all connected is to think of how governments use power and how they try to expand their power when they know that people are, are wary of it, right? It's kind of like the boiling the frog thing, right? You throw a frog in you know, boiling hot water and then it's going to jump out. But if you throw it in cool water and slowly turn it up, then it's going to it's just it boils to death right it doesn't realize the yeah. difference and so they know that if they just came out and said yeah we're going to massively censor the internet and expand government power people would be like well this isn't what can is supposed to be about but so what they do is they say okay well yeah don't worry we're not going to regulate user-generated content and we're just going to give more power to the crtc and then of course they vote against they reject the senate amendment that would have protected user-generated content and so that's C-11, but then C-36, online harms legislation, will give more power to the government to regulate online harms, right? So you've expanded the CRTC's power with C-11, and then you're telling the CRTC what to do with C-36. So with C-36, you can say, oh, we're not expanding the CRTC's power. And with C-11, you say, oh, we're not telling you know, the CRTC what to do, but you do it in two separate pieces of legislation. And the end result is CRTC is much more powerful, has exactly. regula- yeah. regulatory authority. 
on the internet and then gets to tell people what they can say and what they can't say. So yeah. you just do a piecemeal and people wake up one day and realize, hmm, well, I thought the internet was supposed to be free. It doesn't seem like it's too free anymore. Well, and, and I think this issue is very concerning, especially when you look at what the government does currently in terms of federal funding to some 2,000 media outlets. Now, I think a lot of our viewers would be shocked to learn that the federal government dishes out, in, in addition to the state broadcaster, the CBC, a lot of money to some 2,000 media outlets. And they all are, are, are climbing on board in an agreement that says they have to cover certain issues in a certain way. So they no longer mm -hmm. are about news gathering. They're really about, frankly, propaganda. Is that not fair? Yeah, and this is, you know, the one area that I've said before, the one area where the liberals seem to understand human nature. They don't understand what the military with crime, but with influencing the media, they're very, they're very successful at it because you don't have to necessarily tell someone exactly what to say or what to do. You just have to have that person know that their money is going to come from the government if mm -hmm. they want to stay in business. And the conservatives are probably not going to give you that money, but the liberals will. And so, you know, Take it from there, right? What are people going to do? Exactly. Yeah. Journalists already tend to be, on average, not in every case, but on average, left-leaning people. You know, just that seems to be how the industry shakes out. And so you add on to that the incentive that, look, if you if the liberals lose, then you're probably going to, you might be out of a job or your, your company's going to lose some money. And people are going to, they're going to self-censor and they're going to, they're going to push themselves in a pro-liberal direction. They won't even have to be told directly. Yeah, I think you're, that's a good analysis. So I do want to turn a little bit to some elections before we wrap things up here. We've got a number of elections on the horizon. Uh, we've got Alberta, uh, Manitoba a few months, months later, and I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, uh, the next uh, issue of federal leadership. So can we look to Alberta? What do you think is going to happen there quickly? Well, I hope the, the United Conservative Party will get back in. I think it would be disastrous to have the NDP in. Uh, it's very interesting what's happening there. I mean, I think, um, you know, you see CBC seems like they're on a mission to destroy Danielle Smith. You know, they're desperate. I'm sure Trudeau wants that to happen as well. Um, but, you know, the economy is doing pretty well uh, in Alberta. They've got the lowest inflation rate because they actually took action and, you know, made a, a big move to eliminate the tax on gas, oil and gas for people. Um and so I think, I, I, I hope the, the UC people win. That would be my guess that they'll win relatively narrowly. I don't see it being a huge blow. This is, it's always the worst to make political predictions. It's the best way to look like an idiot, right? Oh, Spencer says he's an analyst, but here's, here's what he said. Yeah. But I, I, do, I, I do think it'll be relatively close. Um, I think. You know, and as we look to Manitoba, mm -hmm. where does that look like for Heather Stephenson as she looks style? It's amazing mm -hmm. in, uh, in, yeah. it's in the fall. Is that correct? Yeah, it's not looking too good for the conservatives, unfortunately, in, uh, in um, Manitoba. They, they do well always in the rural areas, but the Winnipeg, Winnipeg is what swings it one way or the other. And the Winnipeg polls aren't looking too good. You know, the, the only thing I think that the chance they have is that I think a lot of people are still concerned about the idea of uh, Wab Canoe as the premier. You know, he has an mm. interesting past, and nobody's perfect. But right. um, I think that bothers a lot of people. Uh, so we'll, we'll see if people are willing to you know actually vote for him. That's right. premier or not indirectly of course they're voting for representatives. and in many but, ways that that campaign has not really begun yet so as that those campaigns begin then then the voter has more scrutiny on those types of parties and their their policies mm -hmm. and the leaders right so do you think the ndp liberal alliance is going to continue for very long um when do you think it would end and when do you think trudeau will frankly um the analogy is a bit like a ship with barnacles building up on it with weights of issues. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but do you think Trudeau will eventually transition out and, and who might be those new leaders? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's, it seems like Singh will just give Trudeau, we'll just give into Trudeau constantly. I mean, he said before the emergencies act inquiry was finished, he said, Oh, even if the government is found by the inquiry to have violated the law, you know, using the act, I'm not going to vote against him. He even said that um, he doesn't see the China interference scandal as something that will cause him to break the agreement. So it's like, what, if you find out that the federal government's heavily corrupted by a hostile foreign power, you're still going to keep them in power? So wow. it doesn't seem like there's much that would cause him to break it off. He threads it every once in a while, but it doesn't really go anywhere. So I, I think that'll probably just keep going um, unless there's some even bigger scandal. I can't think of what would be a worse scandal than mm -hmm. you know, the government being potentially corrupted by China. But who knows? Unpredictable world. But um, I think Trudeau's going to, he's certainly going to run in the next election, it looks like. Uh, he 
he's built a, quite a personality cult for himself within the Liberal Party. He gets away with things that other Liberal politicians wouldn't. Um, it's like the less popular he gets on average, the more rabid his supporters become. So I think he, he's always going to have that support base he's going to use. Um, you know, if Trudeau at some point, you know, when he's he's done, I, I'm seeing people talking about Francois Philippe Champagne. Uh-huh. I think he's yeah. the industry minister or trade minister. Uh-huh. Uh, he's kind of building a, a profile for himself as a more per- potentially serious, reasonable person. Um, you know, it would be interesting if Jody Wilson-Raybould came back. <laughs> That'd yeah. be interesting for the Liberals. She'd probably do well in the country, but I think the Liberals, because they're such a Trudeau cult now, would see her as you mm-hmm. know, an apostate. You know, she went against the leader. She has to be punished, right? So, do you think Do you yeah. think that uh, former uh, finance minister uh, Bill Morneau would be a candidate? Hmm. I, I don't know what base he would have within the Liberal Party. You know, I think the, the small number of business liberals are probably already mostly leaving. You know, they're mm-hmm. not big fans of Trudeau, and, mm-hmm. and they'll decide whether maybe they won't vote or they'll vote conservative next time. Um, I don't I don't see him having much of a base in a party that's largely a personality vehicle built around Justin Trudeau. I don't see him having much of a chance there. Well, it's certainly a very interesting story, and we've covered a lot of ground both internationally and domestically, Spencer. And I'm so glad that you could join us, Spencer Fernando. And where can we find you in terms of your coordinates, Spencer? Yeah, you can go to uh, spencerfernando.com and uh, nationalcitizens.ca, where you can follow me on Twitter if you want to see some more of my aggressive opinions and <laughs> see the interesting arguments that take place there. That's always a fun place to be. Well, thank you so much for telling us the way you see it. Spencer Fernando, thank you for joining us, columnist and a friend of Frontier. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.